Hello, everybody, and welcome to tonight's episode of Battle to Bees Life on Fire podcast. So I have a couple of amazing announcements for you guys, and I'm super, super excited. So the podcast has a new home, and we will be on Heroes Media Group in the next few weeks. So watch for details on how you can find our new format over there. And tonight we have a very special couple who is here representing their nonprofit organization, 1042. And I would like for you guys to welcome Daniel and Christina. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having us. We're honored to be on here and thank you for everything that you're doing and giving people a voice. I just love it. It's it's amazing work having the opportunity to connect with all of you guys because when we see each other at conferences, we don't often have a ton of time to just have real conversations. There's so much going on and there's so many people and our attention is always so divided. So getting you guys for a little bit of time to just pick your brains about what you're doing and how you're helping and and your history and what yeah. you've been through is just it's wonderful it's so amazing and i love getting these stories out there because it's so many people have been through so much and now they've turned it around to help other people and it it gives people hope so yeah it's great to see that there's so many first responders that are finally standing up and using their voice and and i'm I, we're just proud and honored that we get to we get to do that and and i'm i got i went out of medical retirement so i don't have to you know, worry about it being punished or suspended for saying anything. I can just say what's on my heart and be honest and real and, and try to be the voice for the first responders because, you know, as well as I do, they can't really sometimes speak for themselves. Sometimes they have to be a little careful. <laughs> yes, very careful. So I always want to start kind of at the beginning. So tell us a little bit about growing up. What was your family life like? Who were you as a little boy? Yeah, so it's yeah, it's kind of a long story, but uh, so I grew up and and I was born in Newton, Iowa. Uh, that's pretty much where I grew up most of my life is in Newton, Iowa. Um, but in junior high and through those years, uh, my actually when I was about five, my parents got divorced. Uh, so I was raised by a single mom and and uh, I had a two a brother and a sister. So she just did, she worked in a factory and raised those kids and. Around junior, uh, around junior high, um, she met an awesome guy, uh, my stepdad now, Steve Long, and, and they got married. And and boy, our life just got so much better. And, and he actually ended up moving us out to San Diego. He was starting one of his businesses out there, so we moved out to San Diego, and that was just a shock. And uh, you know, some Iowa, Iowa kids going out to to San Diego, and it was a culture shock. And we just loved it. And honestly, we got to grow so much there. And so we were there for a few years. Um, and then honestly, I started to get in a little bit too much trouble and, and mom said it was time for us to move back to Iowa. So we all packed up and moved back to Iowa. And so I went to my, I went to high school here in Iowa, um, played football for a few years and then did, uh, I left all that to do high school rodeo road bowls for a couple of years. And, uh, so yeah, when I went to college here in Iowa up at Sioux city and, uh, I started my law enforcement career in 2000 when I was just 20 years old, actually. So right out of right out of school. I wasn't even, I couldn't even legally buy bullets for my gun. I went to Walmart and they wouldn't sell them to me. <laughs> That's how young I was. So did you know, did you know when you were little that you wanted to be an officer? 
I did. I knew I either wanted to be a cop or I wanted to be a preacher. And uh, so I'd have a gun on one side and, and a Bible on the other. Um, but then I, as I got older, then I really, you know, watching cops and stuff on TV and, and just seeing the officers that I would just admire drive around town, uh, that really became my passion. So, yeah, all the way growing up, that's I knew exactly what I wanted to be. Oh, let me guess. You're an 80s baby. <laughs> You're like close, uh, 79. Uh, cop shows, yes. <laughs> Grew up on the cop shows. Yeah. Yep. Those were fun. Yes. So, so that's the only job that you knew. That's it. I mean, that's, that's all I wanted to be. That's what I went to college for. Uh, that's what I did for 14 years. And, and when I had to leave law enforcement on medical disability, that, that was the really hard part is because I felt like I had lost my life. I'd lost my purpose because of that. I felt like, I know it seems silly now, but honestly, it felt like I was sent to this earth from God to be a police officer. And I realize now how silly that is. But um, so, yeah, I, went, I wanted to be it my whole life. And that's what I got to be. And then it was it was all taken away. And, and I lost purpose and went through some bad years. Why do you say that's silly? Which part? The, the having, feeling like you were oh. created for a certain well, because I, I know now that I'm, that I'm purpose created, you know, I, I, I grew up around a Christian home, but I never really partaked in it. So I was never really a Christian until just a couple of years ago when I finally gave my life to God and got saved and got baptized. And then once I found out, you know, I started to deal with my PTSD issues and I was able to find out through God what my real purpose was in life. So now when I look back and think that my purpose on life was to carry a badge and arrest people. And, and yeah, I realized that was a purpose, but that's not the purpose. And that my purpose here is just to actually help fill the kingdom uh, of heaven with people and just lead people to Christ and help give people their life back and help uh, get them through their struggles that, that I went through for all those years. I love that. Help give people their life back. Yeah. So, you, you, lose it. you really do lose your life. I mean, you go into isolation and, and, and you lose it. And just watching people get their life back and see the sparkle in their eyes, it's priceless. So it drives us. Yes, I know that. I know that that feeling and that they, you want people to come to you who are at their absolute worst and who have tried everything and nothing has worked because you know that there is an answer and that it doesn't have to be like that. And to see that turn around is the most unbelievable, like unbelievably rewarding moment. And it always is like a moment. There yes. seems to be like this this crumbling away of all the resistance and of all the the lack of hope, I guess, is like it all falls away and all of a sudden there's this realization that, oh my gosh, I really do have choice and I really do have hope and there really is answers. There is and it's almost like a switch kind of it's not like some other healing processes throughout life. It's almost like once they get it, once they realize that they can help start to break free from it from it, and that they do have a purpose in life again. It's literally like a switch and the healing just starts and it starts immediately and you start to just see it in their eyes and you see hope come back to them. And it's, that's our why. I mean, that's why we do this. That's why here at the 1042 Project, there's no guilt or shame. It's because we want to give that sparkle back and give their life back because I know what it's like to be stuck in your room with a bottle of vodka and ashamed to even go to Walmart to buy groceries because you're afraid people are going to see you and, and just for some reason you think they know what's going on inside your head and you just start to isolate yourself and we want to bring that back. So we'll get to the relationship in a little bit, but tell us about, tell us about being an officer. Tell us about your job. 
was that like for you in the beginning? I when I first started, you know, I was 20 years old. I was I was just actually I was still in college in my last year of college. And the way it worked is if you got hired, you were allowed to leave college your last semester. And then once you finished the academy, they'd they'd give you your college credits for your last semester. So I got to leave college even a little bit early. Um, but it was just it was it was amazing. I mean, honestly, like anything, you kind of feel like an imposter at first, like anything in, in life that you're uncomfortable with that you start to do, you kind of feel like an imposter. So at first it was it was just nerves and scare and just scariness. But then once you you put on the badge and you get to go out and truly help people, that, I mean, day after day and actually get to see the good that police officers do. I know a lot of people don't realize that we do do that, but once you actually go out and see it and get to see that in, in people's life it's pretty amazing um, but unfortunately there's a lot of uh, the bad side of the the job that that eats you apart and, and that's what took me out when did things start going downhill for you um you know the more i think about it it's, it's i know that over time because it's weird because it's like the more i remember then the more i can kind of go back even further and further but because I spent so many years trying to drink away the memories and just trying not to deal with the memories that now that, you know, that I've been sober for a couple of years and, and I'm healthy now that these memories come back. So sometimes I, I think, well, it's this year. And then, you know, through months of talking with her, or, you know, do, just working for the 1042 project, I start to remember other memories. So it keeps going back further and further. But honestly, I would probably say around 2005. So probably only about five years in is, is, when I really started to notice that the live vibrant person I used to be no longer wanted to even leave the house and sure the heck didn't want to go to work. But at the same time, I couldn't get enough of work. If that makes any sense. Like it was weird. <laughs> it was, it was a very odd time for me, but I was, so I'd probably say five years in. So you need the adrenaline, you need the excitement, you need the purpose, yes. but the experience doesn't live up to, doesn't live up to that. Yeah, you know, it's it's the going to call, to call, to call, dealing with everybody's worst moment of their life. I mean, nobody, you know, that's why when people call law enforcement, it's, it's usually not for a good thing. So it's, you literally drive, get out of the car, deal with somebody's worst moment, get back in your car, dri drive to the next one. And it's those those calls that you think really don't wear on you. You know, the, the death notifications and some of those what you think are just routine calls, but you start to realize those are the ones that are eating at you and, and tearing you apart. You know, and then you have those big sledgehammer calls that come throughout your career. But and, and sometimes we we can I think people are addressing more of those sledgehammer calls now, but not so much paying attention to these what we like to what they used to like to call routine calls of just dealing with fatality accidents and death and 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 some of the stuff that we have to see. Um, so yeah, sorry I can ramble. No, you're fine. You're perfect. You're perfect. What we what of course our objective is here is so that people who are in that early phase and they're going, something's just not right. Something doesn't, I, I just, I'm not connecting with myself. When I look in the mirror, I don't like who I see. I don't understand who this person is. I don't understand what's happening to me. What's changing? Like the job, is it me? Is it my relationship? All of these things are a part of it and they don't necessarily see the connection. They don't, they don't know what's happening. So even knowing what PTSD is often comes across as something no one ever told them what the signs and symptoms were early on. So they're like, well, I didn't know until 20 years later that it was even PTSD we were talking yes. about. 
<laughs> and that was me. That's why, you know, looking back, it's kind of hard to look back on because it's hard, it's hard to get the exact same time, get the exact time. But because at the time, I honestly didn't know why. I just thought maybe I didn't know why I felt I didn't know why I was so depressed. I didn't know why. I just felt like whenever when I wasn't off duty, I had to be drinking. I had to be numbing the the thoughts and the you know that old slideshow of just every bad image you've ever been on that just flashes through your eyes throughout the day. I don't I don't I don't know why, but now looking back, I I do like I can go back and I can almost feel it again and know what it's like. And I kind of get mad at myself for not recognizing it back then. Um, but it was just it just wasn't talked about back then. It wasn't. Nobody in the squad room, I mean, it was just nothing you talk. You didn't dare talk about it, really. You know, it was always, uh, you it, you know, if you were to say something, it would be don't take it home with you, which I've never understood what the heck that means for human beings. We can't just leave our uniform at the in the locker at work and, and not think about it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 if we can figure out if we can figure out that first trigger or that first thing where we that we start to that starts to change us and i know that's a lot of what your organization's working on and what you're focused on we can if we can identify those earlier then we can try to save people from going through the, the hell that i went through and we could try to save some careers and more importantly save some lives um so the first science for me was was really was isolation and I started to feel, this is going to probably sound weird, but I started to feel guilt and shame of the job. Not that I was doing anything bad at work. I just felt the guilt. Like, I felt like the public didn't like us. I didn't feel like, I don't know. I just, I didn't feel the pride that came with being an officer anymore. I felt like there was a, like things had just shifted in the country. And it was kind of, and, and I, especially now to, in today's life, in today's era, I think it's it's kind of like when the, like a Michael Screws book, he talks about how, and after Vietnam, how the soldiers were treated like like garbage is kind of what's happening to first responders in this country right now. And I think history is going to look back and be very ashamed over this time. But we're living in it, so we got to deal with it. But yes, the totally agree. Yeah, that is what kept me. That's what kept me from actually signing on to be an officer. I was working towards being an investigator, and in my state. No matter what degrees you had, no matter what background you had, you didn't go to investigations without going to the street. And the street was not a place for me because, you know, I'm like five, six. I was 120 pounds, not exactly aggressive with my voice. So my husband looked at me and he said, they're going to eat you alive. Like you are not the girl who's going to pull someone over and be able to command respect. And if you can't command respect, it's like the whole thing was literally, you're just going to get shot. You're going to get shot in the face. That's just like the thing. And it was the time when it started happening, those ambush calls where people think they're going to a domestic and they get out of their car and they get, they get shot the second that they open their door for like, it's not even a call. There was never a risk. It's literally, they get called, an ambush. And I was like, yep. this is what is going to happen. If this is what the the environment's going to be, people, people are starting to hate the, the officers. They're starting to, you know, do these horrible things. I mean, we had a firefighter get killed in his truck. And I was just like, who doesn't like firefighters? Like what's, what is that? So it's just like, I don't even understand what's happening here. And I was just, this is not for me. So that I, I had to back out. <laughs> I had to back well, out. Go, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of people are saying a lot of people are saying that now. They're not saying yes to the job anymore. That's why there's all these jobs that are vacant right now, and and the quality of of the applicants are dropping dramatically because of that 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 reason right there. It's, it's how they get treated by the public. And I feel guilty 
a little bit for that choice. But on the other side of it was, it wasn't because I was afraid to die. It wasn't because I was afraid of the job. It was because I was afraid to die for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. I didn't want, I was willing to give my life for someone else. I was willing to give my life to do something that mattered, but to get shot in the street that way was not acceptable. And I couldn't, I couldn't come to terms with that. So I don't know how you guys do it right now in this environment. It, it is completely astonishing to me that people are strong enough to get up every day and put on that uniform and go stand in the face of all of that uh, negativity and the way people talk to them and disrespect them. I just absolutely can't even imagine having the strength to do that and trying to maintain my sanity. Right. It's a challenge. All that. So, I mean, it's a big, it's a big job. Yeah. So marriages, it's always a conversation everyone avoids, but the latest statistics that we could find was in the police department, we're looking at somewhere in the vicinity, because no one can agree, of 80% failed marriages. Yeah. What was your experience with that? for yourself and for the people that you saw? Yeah, I was, I was married for 13 years. Uh, I was married, I was married in 2000, got married in 2000, divorced in 2013. Um, honestly, I think on my department, there was very few officers that weren't at least divorced once. Um, I know I got divorced um, around the same time. It seemed like several officers were getting divorced. Um, but yes, it's, it's almost it almost seems rare anymore to find an officer that's been married for several years, honestly. The funny thing, the ones who have been with their spouses for a long period of time tend to be those who have spouses that are also first responders. Yes. There's a funny little like, I get you, so it's okay. You know, yes. either one of us is really okay with talking about it. And when you're in that kind of relationship, there's this mutual space that you can give to each other that you just, you just know how to support each other without saying anything. You don't have to say, this is what I saw today. Yeah. Because you just know. But right. I think that the conversations where they say, leave it at, don't, don't take it home is a huge mistake. I think, I think learning how to share responsibly with your spouse could be a game changer for people. So you don't have to say, you know, this is what I saw and this is all the gory details and, you know, but if you went home and said, I had a really rough day, will you just sit with me? Or, you know, the call that I went on today was really traumatic. It was really rough. I feel this way about it. You don't have to express exactly what happened. You don't have to burden your spouse with gory details, but to share your emotional state and to share your your need for comfort with them would bond relationships instead of destroying them. Yeah. And, and honestly, I, it's, I openly did the opposite. Like we kind of had a policy um, that don't ask me about my day. If there's something I want to tell you about, I'll tell you about it. But I get to the point where, where she would know to not even ask me about it. Or if she knew I was on a bad call that day or on a fatality or something, she would know that, I would be coming home, getting alcohol and going straight to the bedroom. And that was it. So it's, it, it, it went downhill in a hurry, but it has to start at home. It has to start with your spouse. And, 
And honestly, you know, until we started dating and having a healthy relationship and talking to her, we dated for a while before she knew anything about my PTSD. She obviously knew I was a, an officer, but I didn't tell her about it for a long time. Um, and she can tell you a little bit more about that. But once I started to talk to her, it was really cool because then I was able to talk to my mom. And then I was able to talk to my pastor at, at church. And then I was able to tell this person. And each time I told the story or told just talked a little bit about it, it just felt like the weight was coming off every single time. And but it starts, it definitely starts at home with your spouse. You have to have somebody at home that is safe to talk to where you can literally just come home and, and say anything you want, no matter if you want, if you just want a shoulder to cry on or a, you want to do want to tell them the gory details. I mean, sometimes it sounds, it may sound weird to the, to the normal civilian, but like when we have our 1042 project get togethers and stuff, when guys and gals are sitting around talking, it can get kind of gory, but it's it's the therapeutic for them to, to talk about that, especially with people that understand it. Um, so for the spouses at home, please, if they do start to share with you some of the bad stuff, try to try to grit it and take it. But if they're talking about it, they want to. But yeah, I, I used to have a policy in my house that was the complete opposite. It was we don't talk about it. And that was even with my friends. When we would go out, when we'd go out golf, when we'd go to the bars or whatever, everybody knew the policy. Dan doesn't talk about work. Don't talk to him about any call he went on. And I had a buddy text me. Um, from back in the day, back then, he texted me a few weeks ago when we were chatting about the 1042 project and the old policy of don't talk about it. And he goes, huh, I think we maybe screwed that up. And I thought, yeah, we did. We, we probably shouldn't have had that policy in place. But yes, it starts at home with your wife, with your spouse, somebody that's safe, and just start letting them know. And then it's going to then carry it on to your best friend or to somebody else that feels safe. And eventually you'll be willing to be on a podcast live and just share your story in hopes that <laughs> your pain and hurt can help somebody else. But she could probably tell you more about that side of it. Yes. Yeah, so now you get yeah. to tell us, like, how did you meet him? And what was that like? like so when you, when you found him. <laughs> so when Daniel and I met, we were both working at the same place. So it was just through work. And I had been working there, I think like five or six years or something at the time. And so he was the, new guy. And we were just friends for quite a while. I just got to like know him as a person. And like he'd said, I I knew that he was a police officer, but he did not breathe the word of PTSD or that his job was traumatic, honestly. Like it just wasn't even brought up at all. And so it, yeah, that wasn't really discussed. And then, um, you know, we just got to the point where like we were, um, you know, started dating and decided we want to take our relationship further and stuff. And, um, I can't remember how long into us dating. I was like, I just noticed some things like I have a degree in psychology. And so that probably helped me a little bit. And I was just like, um, have you ever thought about looking into if maybe you have PTSD? (laughs) And he was like, I've got that taken care of. I'm, you know, that's where he was at that point. Like, honestly, yeah, like that's how far he's come. And so I was like, okay, you know, I could tell by his response, it wasn't a comfortable thing for him. So I was intentional about not um, pushing him out of his comfort zone, but just letting him know, like, I'm here for you. Like, you know, it's okay to just share what you're going through or what you're struggling with. Like, it's, it's okay. I'm here for you either way, no matter what. And then eventually he did, you know, start to share more just little stories, little things here and there, and then became a lot more open about how um, he knew that PTSD is something that he really struggled with. And, you know, it was um, 
more of a thing than really he was comfortable with sharing at first. Um, but I did notice that as time went on, the more stories that he shared with me, the more comfortable he got with just even talking about it. And um, I just tried to make sure that I made it a safe space. He was free to talk about what he wanted when he was ready. I didn't push and like, you know, try to bring up stuff when we were, you know, doing something else. Like I, I let him initiate that and just share what he wanted and just, you know, make sure that he knew that I was grateful that he was willing to share that with me. Cause I know that that was a lot and it really was a good relationship builder really, you know? So I was just like grateful that I got to be that person for him and that he was willing to open up and share those things and, you know, and, and let me hear what was heavy on his heart. So I could be part of his, of his healing. And um, yeah, like he said, then it, it got to where he was willing to tell family members and, and I can't tell you how many times he would tell me a story and say, I've never told this to anybody before. I've never talked about this before. And when he would tell his family members, that kind of clued me in on how little he did talk about it before. Because then they'd say, wow, I had no idea. I had no idea, you know. So we really do want to, like, we're so passionate about changing this. Because, um, you know, I like I was never a first responder, but how sad that he felt isolated for so long, so much that he was holding in and wasn't sharing with anybody. And we don't want anybody else to feel like that. We, you know, we want everyone to experience the healing that comes with talking about it. Well, and half the people that he worked with were going through the same things, but nobody was willing to talk about it. So you're on your own little, your own little island of suffering when you could have supported each other, but that we don't talk about it. We don't ever, yeah. we don't say that we're hurting. If we even, the one that gets me is if you even say that call was hard, if you even mention that, oh my gosh, that was really hard to look at, you know, throw up, you know, whatever other involuntary response you may have, none of that is okay. So, you know, you'll never live it down, but your system is reacting, like your nervous system is reacting, your body is reacting and you're pretending nothing's happening. So it's so huge to just crack open that facade a little bit so that people can say, yeah, that sucked. Yes. And not yeah. get made fun of. I remember the first time I called her when I, cause I, I have panic attacks a lot or I, I, get, I remember the first time I picked up the phone and actually called her when I was having a panic attack. And that was the first time I've ever done that in my life. And I think she knew my, my voice as soon as I answered or as soon as she answered. And, but that was just powerful just to have somebody there, you know, and it just pulled me out of my panic attack right away. But she's been there for me and we wouldn't have been, you know, we wouldn't have that if we just, if I didn't start just talking to her about it. And she was, was, you know, if she wasn't a safe place, obviously we would we never would have got anywhere, but, all she had to do was listen. I mean, really, it wasn't like she really even, you know, there was no groundbreaking therapy. She yeah. would just listen and it, it was powerful. That's a funny thing. We go to get doctoral degrees to learn how to appropriately listen and not make faces and, and not make noises or judgments or like any indication that what we are feeling is anything. Like right. whatever, you, whatever comes has to be okay for us because the second that, someone who does psychology, the second that you flinch, the second that you breathe, like even a sharp intake of breath, that relationship is over. They don't trust you anymore. So, so literally 
our job is to go spend 10 years in school learning how to hear it all and not respond with anything <laughs> but just just say what you need to say and yep. so many people have a natural gift for that that's what Pierce board is for like exactly. those people who have a natural gift for it and don't have 10 years to go to school you don't yep. have to <laughs> be there for people and most of what therapy is is listening and you know cognitive behavioral therapy is the number one thing they want to give people for post-traumatic stress it's like eight exercises in life coaching it really is just basic everyday life skills so you know it's it doesn't take it doesn't take a doctoral degree to be able to help someone or to understand what people need a set of ears and a good heart will do it yep sometimes some people definitely need the full-on legitimate psychotherapy so yeah. not saying yeah. i don't adore my therapist friends and think that they do an amazing job but but there's so much need out there and there's not enough therapy not enough access not enough money not enough uh trauma specialized people because any therapist is not the person who can take someone who's dealing with PTSD. It takes a very special, specialized therapist to deal with PTSD. So there's just not enough out there. So what are we gonna do? Just leave everybody, everybody hanging or recognize broadly that there's a skill set that comes way before therapy that can be very useful. So Yeah, and not only is it useful, I would say, you know, with, with peer, support, peer support groups, and um, what was I say? Sorry. <laughs> fine. Like the the value of peer support groups and and having those people there to listen. Because another thing that we talked about before is how some people aren't. Um, there's kind of like a spectrum, right, of how ready you are to pursue different resources yes. and and things like that. And so I think it's important to acknowledge, like like you were mentioning, the other options out there for people to you know have some kind of outlet for healing. Um, that yeah. it's better than nothing, you know, like, a, a, yeah, like a peer support group, stuff like that. Yeah, that's what Those I was are say. important resources. Yeah. The peer support groups and, and the, the coaching is, is kind of a fairly new thing to me, at least anyway, over the last 10 years, the whole peer support and coaching. And, and to me, I've noticed that just in a short period of time, we've been doing this, that that is actually a very, one of the most impactful levels that peer support and that coaching level, because usually those people were people that used to wear the uniform. You know, when you start going to the therapist and stuff like that, guys and gals like me don't feel like they can relate to us. They don't understand us. But that peer support group, man, that's where you can really sit down with people that understand you. And you don't have to, like you said before about spouses that are both, you know, police officers are married. They just kind of both get it. Well, it's kind of that same thing in the peer support groups and, and the coaching that the first responder coaching that's out there is really, it's, that's where so much of the healing is. And that's where so many of the, so much of the onion starts to get peeled is during those. And then when they're more and ready to, you know, after they've they've done that, then they'll be more willing to go to the, you know, 30-day treatments or to a psychotherapist or whatever else they need to go to. But it really does start with that peer-to-peer -peer and, and the coaching, those lower levels. And I just love that there's so many people getting into those right now. And I hope it continues to grow because it is it's, it's, it's a lot of value in, in that. those peers helping each other because you understand each other. And that's that's powerful. So I want to talk about something a little off the cuff and a little, a little unique. 
So, yeah. <laughs> so in this in this realm of um, coaching and and peer support and stuff, what is the role of the first responder sense of humor? Like, there's this particular brand of dark humor where, like, I've noticed there's. I worked in the emergency room for years, so you can get as nasty as you want with, you know, whatever, describing parts and pieces and whatever. It's all funny. But people who are like on the outside hear you having a conversation where you're talking about, you know, something really crude and they don't understand why we laugh. They don't understand that it's a coping mechanism. So in your in your work, have you noticed have you noticed that that's an access point that it helps to talk to people and just allow that conversation? Or do you find that people tend to be so like afraid of being judged now that they're more careful? Um, I think it depends. I think um, we, we kind of experienced that when we had our first like peer support meeting, we had it at a, at a public restaurant, not really thinking this through all the way. So everybody starts to show up and we're sitting at the tables and, and the next thing I know, you know, we're just telling stories. And, and that finally, I kind of pulled myself out of the conversation a little, little bit and looked around at all the people around us. And I thought, I bet these people are ready to puke or call the manager and have us kicked out because guys were, and gals were just opening up and telling stories. And we do use humor. And, and, not, and, and we do use, yeah, we use humor a lot to cover up our pain. And a lot of times we'll use our humor in a way of kind of throwing it out there to see if it's safe to talk about. We may use humor sometimes with our spouses or, you know, a family member. And a lot of times that humor may sound a little weird and sick, but it also sometimes is, is a cry for help. That's them saying that something's bugging them. And, and a lot of times we use humor to cover that up just to see that way. If they look at you weird or something, you'd be like, Oh, I'm just kidding. Right. You know, you can just play it off. But yeah, honestly, I, I kind of wish us as all of us as first responders would stop doing that and stop using that humor. But it's what we use, and there's it. It happens. So yeah, we've learned that we've moved all of our meetings into a private location, just for that right there. We want people to be able to uh, be open and honest and transparent without having little Johnny and his mom puking in the corner because of the stories that are being told. <laughs> and also, we we recently spoke with a uh, first responder um, coach, and she talked about how. There's like there's a valuable role for that kind of uh, dark humor that you see a lot in first responders and with their coping. Um, and she just had talked about how, um, you know, there there is a purpose for it. And, you know, it does it serves a role in in the healing and, you know, them talking about it and just kind of um, how she like it's a green light for her, you know, because it's it's just part of the process. What's your view on that? I'm just curious. Oh, I'm notorious for it. So yeah. I I just uh, wanted to bring that up with you guys because I kind of expected you to have a lot of familiarity with it. And it's something that I want the public to understand a little bit more. And then I want them to, uh, to, to see, is this not because um, it's not because first responders are cold hearted. It's not because they're not taking the situation seriously. In fact, it's usually because they're taking the situation seriously. And oftentimes in the heat of the moment at an accident scene or at um, just whatever it is, at the call out that's that's gone sideways, there will be, because now everyone's wearing cameras and they're seeing all this video footage online, that there's comments that are made that are a little crass or seem cold or seem you know, inappropriate. But to put that into the context of this is how 
they deal this is how they off that tension how they how they release that moment of of absolute despair is that you laugh about it or you have to have a different response like putting your fist through your car window so you choose they they have to get it out somehow so i i just kind of figured it was going to be a really safe conversation out with you guys and that it would be useful to get that out for the public a little bit more clearly um, than i am able to do with some of my guests who have yeah. less understanding of this particular concept it's not because they don't feel it's because they do feel and they feel pain and, and you and like i said you don't leave it at home you can't leave it at home with you trust me that first responder who you think said something that was inappropriate He's at, he's at, he went home, he or she went home that night and I guarantee he had trouble sleeping and was sad and was thinking about that family of the person that was killed or whatever it may be. It's just in the moment when you're in, you know, you're, you're in the ringer and you're trying to just get through the job and get through the crime scene or whatever it may be. You, you do what you do, what you take, you, you do what you do to get through it. And sarcasm and joking is how you get through it, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know how you want to look at it, but it, it's how we got through it. And it's, it's not. You know, again, it's not, we're not being cold hearted. We're honestly, we're, we're hurt and we're just trying to get through it. And we're trying to get through it with a smile on our face, not with tears pouring down our eyes. Mm -hmm. So the jokes kind of help keep the smile and keep the tears away. I feel like it's kind of similar in a sense to, um, you, you know, when somebody's going through grief and people kind of know, like the saying, everybody grieves differently and they know that it looks different, it can look different ways. And I think it's kind of like that. Like somebody is experiencing something like just because, their first responder doesn't mean they're not human, right? So they've got an emotional response to what they're seeing and what they're going through. And there, there has got to be a response for that in some way. And I feel like it, it's understandable that it would come out in this, the form of humor rather than, you know, like, like you guys had mentioned, like a violent form or just breaking down, you know, it, they're, they're coping and yeah. We're just doing our best. Yeah. <laughs> it's really important that we bridge this gap a little bit, that we create some understanding for the community because they don't live this world. They don't see this world. So they don't comprehend. They don't see why reactions are the way they are. So um, having these conversations allows people who aren't close to the industry in any way to recognize that the humanity of our officers and our firefighters and EMTs and dispatchers. We always forget the dispatchers and they probably have one of the hardest jobs of all. So yes. And even teachers now, I, we're starting to see teachers almost as frontline because they're, they're in the thick of quite a bit of struggle too. So um, we just have to recognize that we're all, no matter what role we play, that we're all human and that we, we have to cope. So putting, putting everybody under a microscope with these videos and analyzing every word they say and criticizing because you saw three to five seconds of an incident that lasted three days is completely, it's not helpful and it's destroying the way that officers feel about themselves because all of these critical comments and the way that people are putting just the horrible moments out there is making it look like you're horrible people and you don't have a heart and you don't love your job and you're not out there doing anything good because they see five seconds, not the reality. Yep. So we need to exactly. expand that picture again so people realize there's so much more to the job and there's so much more to every individual 
and every call and every moment. Yes, and, we're all just human. We all grieve. We all have pain. And whether they have a uniform on or not, trust me, they go home and they hurt and they feel and they feel it all. And and, and that's what they're you know that's what they're having trouble processing. So I yeah I really hope and I honestly I think. I really think that the, we're coming to a time with where the public and the public is starting to understand first responders a little bit and more about their mental health because of organizations like yours and other organizations. They're starting to understand a little bit. And I also think it's meeting at the perfect time where first responders are finally becoming open to it. So I kind of think at the same time as the public is starting to get knowledge and, and get educated on it, so are the first responders and that we are kind of at this rising crossroad where I think things are going to improve because people are willing to talk. People like you are willing to to give a platform and, and you know, people like us are willing to come on and talk. And, and until we can change that, until we can get more people to come out and talk and make it and just normalize it and, and just get people, not just first responders, just get the general public to watch stuff like this and just realize that we are human and that we grieve. And, and when we go to a death, we grieve it just like everybody else. And yeah, you may hear a five second clip of us screaming or yelling because we're at a call and, and crap's hit the fan, but that's us just trying to survive and trying to live and trying to get through that moment. But we do process that we deal with it and, and, and we care. And a lot of people think we don't care, but we do, we do care. And and sometimes it's, I feel like sometimes we cared a little bit too much because we have trouble letting go. Um, yeah. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about um, your organization. What do you, and what you do and how people can get a hold of you. Yes. Thank you. So, 1042 projects started. Uh, I was in the summer of 2020 during the COVID COVID years and uh, the race riots were going on and I would turn on the news. I wasn't an officer at the time, but I would turn on the news and, and it just tore me up to see my brothers and sisters just being drugged through the mud and spit on and attacked on the news every single night when arson and everything else was going on throughout the country. And I had a panic attack one night and ended up, been a, ended up back in the hospital. And, and uh, when I got out of there, um, her and my mom decided I should go to a, a counseling session. So I tried another counseling session with a new counselor. And long story short, it went really, really, it went terrible. Uh, this person was not trained on dealing with first responders. And I think there's a lot of value in finding uh, somebody that, to help you that does work with first responders. Uh, so we went there and it destroyed me. Um, I actually left there. When we left that appointment, I'd already decided I was going to kill myself. Um, her and I were engaged at the time and just the thought of bringing her and her kids into my life and at my mental state, the way it was, I thought I couldn't do, I can't do this to another family. I cannot do this. And I went home that night. I didn't sleep at all. Um, I was destroyed. I was having all kinds of flashbacks. I went to work the next morning, just cried all the way to work. I mean, just blood curdling cry, just hurt. And uh, my boss came in he saw me cry and, and sit there and, and he walked in and told me to go home for the day. And I did. And, and on the way home, I decided I was going to kill myself. That's when I was going to do it. Uh, I've covered fatalities on that road before. I knew exactly where I could crash my car and just end it all. Uh, on the way there, I just, as I was driving home and just crying, I just felt the presence. And I wasn't really a Christian guy at the time. I just felt the presence of God just in, in my car and telling me to go to this lake that was kind of close to where we lived. So I went there and, and I just fell to the ground and started crying. And I, and I prayed for God to, to, to just use me and, and give me a purpose or lose me because I just wanted to die. And. He kind of at that time just showed I had no plan of starting the 1042 project. I couldn't help myself at that time. But he showed me like this vision of an officer sitting in a tub in a bathtub like I used to do with his service weapon pushed against his head and a bottle of vodka, you know, just sitting there hoping that I, I would twitch and just pull the trigger and kill myself. I would I saw this vision and 
but the person sitting in the tub wasn't me. And instantly I just felt like this, this thing come over me that about starting an organization to help first responders that are struggling just like me. And I didn't know what that would look like at first, but I stood up and I just felt like a new person. And I went home and I started talking to her about it. And eight days later, we bought the domain for 1042project.org. And we, we really, when we sat down to come up with the organization, uh, my wife asked me, what would you have needed? What would younger Daniel have needed back then? And and for me, you would have needed to remove all the excuses. So we set out and we start, we built a 1042 project and, and I'll try to keep it kind of short here, but what the way 1042 project is, is we're just a peer support organization that we are trying to help bridge the gap between the first responders that are sitting at home or getting off the shift and they know something's going on inside of them and they don't know quite know what it is. And maybe they're not ready to reach out to a therapist or they're not ready to, to reach out to somebody for help. We're creating a video. When you go to our website, 1042.org, we're going to be creating a video catalog. We purchase professional studio recording equipment, and we're going to be making videos with people like you and other uh, nonprofits and people in the industry um, that are what they have the heart like that we do to truly help first responders, um, not the ones that are just trying to out to make money, but the ones that truly have a heart. We want to help them get known and we want to help them get fully funded. Um, so we, we, we're going to have where you can go to our website and you'll be able to click on whatever category you're struggling with. Maybe it's your marriage or maybe it's alcohol or depression or suicidal thoughts like that I struggled with for so many years or a pill addiction. I fought a, I fought a pill addiction for years and maybe you have guilt and shame. You know, we want to have, have categories of different videos that our team's going to be making in our studio and our portable studios. Um, we're going to be posting these videos so you, people can go on there and just get 15, 20 minutes of some hope listen to the fellow first responders talk about our experiences and kind of normalizing some of the pain and how to deal with it. Cause honestly, as a younger officer, if somebody, if some a veteran officers would have came to me and said, Hey, young man, let me, let me help guide you and show you what this is going to be like. And when you go on your first hard call, let's have coffee and talk about it and just hear from a veteran about what it's going to be like. I'd probably still be wearing a uniform today. It, so we want to help kind of normalize that. So we want people that whether they're ready to go to a 30 day facility for a treatment or for a, chemical issue or a depression issue, whatever it may be, but they're not ready to go there yet. We want to help peel that onion to where they can watch videos and see what help is and what it looks like in a safe place. And then when they're ready, they can reach out for us and we will, we will pay for them to, to go to whatever training they want to go to or whatever um, therapy they want to go to. We don't want cost to be a barrier. I do know with first responders, we so often get caught up in debt because I feel like we're chasing our mental health, right? We're, we're buying the new camper to try to help you know, get away from our reality. We're buying the boat, we're buying the, the motorcycle. And the next thing you know, you're, it all comes at a cost and truly a cost. So now you're working overtime. So now you're not only just working your 10 hour shift or your eight hour shift. Now you're signing up for overtime to pay for all these toys that was supposed to help you. And so there's a lot of financial issues that first responders have. We want to remove that. Um, so we'll have our video library that people can go to and they can get help. We're going to be going around finding all the different nonprofits and making videos with them. We'll put links on there. And we'll make videos with them. That way, if somebody goes, you know, they want to go to a 30-day treatment facility, they'll be able to go to our website and see exactly what it's like to walk in there. We'll send our camera crews there, our people. We're going to show them what it's like. We're going to interview people that's been there. And we're just going to kind of help remove some of that fear. Um, Because that was another thing you would have had to remove for me was the fear of it and the fear of walking alone. And with the 1042 Project, you do not walk alone. Reach out to us. We want you to go to 1042.org. Hit the Get Connected. Reach out to us. We want to be able to walk alongside of you. Um, we don't have all the answers. We're still getting healing. We're still traveling the country, going to mental health symposiums, getting healing for ourselves. And we're just simply asking you to reach out to us and get connected. We want you to join us. 
I don't care where you live in the country. We want you to fly in. We'll help pay for you. Um, we want you to fly into the conference, spend a couple of days with us and our team and some fellow peers. We're going to have some fellowship. We're going to have some fun. We're going to get some healing along the way. And uh, we're also going to have our portable recording studio at these symposiums. And we'll be making videos with all the different speakers and stuff that are at the symposiums and spotlighting the symposium. Um, so we'll also be, as we travel to these symposiums, we want people to come and walk alongside of us and just help, um, you know, help get help for themselves. And we want to do three things. We want to equip them. We want to um, restore them. And then we know by, by doing those two things that they'll be repurposed and they'll have a new purpose. And we want them to walk alongside us. And then we want them to just start traveling with us if they can and throwing on a 1042 shirt and, and help lead the generation coming up behind us and help bring on the new people that want to join the 1042 project and just help mentor them and be there for them. Um, so it's kind of a multifaceted thing. We're going to have the videos and we're also going to be having what we call our ER trips, equip and restore. Um, we're going to be having those where we go to different mental health symposiums around the country and get some healing and just have some fun um, entertainment and stuff. We'll do some entertaining stuff at nights. If we're in an area maybe where there's whitewater rafting, we'll all go do stuff like that and just kind of have some fellowship and give people their life back and and let them not have to worry about the, the finances and, and their stress at home and just have some fellowship and in time with some with some fellow peers. So that's what the 1042 project is. It's really just a community of peers and we're trying to just um, have some videos for people to watch and a community for people to join. And how can people find you? At 1042project.org or you can go to, you have all the rest memorized. Well, we have our Facebook page and we have a TikTok, um, but for sure our website, 1042project.org, it's 10-42project.org. Um, and you'll see our intro videos there. And we also have a YouTube channel um, and you can see the rest of our videos there as well. Um, and like Daniel mentioned, we have the get connected button on our website and that'll be a really easy way for you to reach out to us and get connected and we can just take those next steps with you. Yeah. And I want the first responders at home to know that we really, really are after, I mean, clear down to the people that were just like me, the ones that never left the house that were addicted to pain pills and alcohol and you kept playing out your suicide, you know, and you, I'm, I don't care how lost and broken you think you are. You are allowed to, you are, you are welcome at 1042 Project. There's no guilt or shame. We don't care if you just got hired or just got fired. I don't care if you just got out of prison. We don't care. We just truly want to help you give your life back and, and just to help give, repurpose you and allow you to have your life back and to help others. So just know that you are welcome here. I know there's a lot of, when I was looking at different organi organizations back when I was struggling, I remember one time there was a Facebook group that I tried to join as a police officer and they, and they rejected me and, and that hurt. I honestly was very, I don't, I still to this day don't know why it was, I didn't get accepted to the group. That will never happen with 1042 Project. You are accepted. You are welcome. We're not a closed group. Um, we may take grief from the public because we're not a closed group, but that's fine. That's a good way to get on our prayer list is just by bashing us online. That's a very, we have a prayer team set up just for that. So. <laughs> We'll pray for you if you get passion. So, so that's kind of what we're about is just trying to help give people their life back and and, and just come walk alongside of us and, and let us walk alongside you. And if there's if you're a first if you're a, someone out there that's providing help for first responders, we want to help get you known. Whether you're a coach or that you're a therapist, well, I don't care what whatever it may be. Um, if you have a true heart to help our brothers and sisters, we want to either fly you out to our location or we'll come to you and make videos and talk about what your organization does and how you're helping our brothers and sisters. That way, when people come to our website, we'll have a some web we'll have a website full of resources that our people have gone through. We've checked it out. We've made videos with. 
we've sent first responders to. We'll, we're going to be video blogging along the way as we're doing all this stuff. So you guys at home can just see what it's like. And then when you're ready to step in and join us, reach out and just come alongside us. And we want to help give you your life back. So, you know, please reach out to me anytime that you need anything or I can help you with anything. Just let me know. Thank, thank you so you. much. And thank you for giving the people a voice. I just really appreciate it. And we love your heart. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. And any one last words? I'm not just, if you're at home, reach out. It's just reach out. I can tell you from a person who had one foot in the grave, uh, there's hope. There's hope. You just got to open up and start talking and there are safe places out there and just, just start somewhere. I love that. Just start somewhere. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, you guys. So Take that message to heart, reach out to me, reach out to them, reach out to one of our past guests, reach out to anyone, whatever it takes, take that first step. We know that first step is always the hardest. Healing isn't linear, but every day a little bit better. There is hope. There is light. You are worth it. And no matter how much of a burden you may feel, everyone disagrees with you. Everyone you think you are being a burden to is going to miss you, wants you around, and would tell you no. And you all have seen the aftermath. You all know in your rational mind that the choice that you're thinking about isn't the choice that's the best for anyone. So if you're in that dark place, we care about you. And we want you to be here for the tomorrow that is meant for you. So please take that step reach out to anyone. And thank you so much for being here with us tonight. I am so grateful to be able to share so many resources with you to show you that there are so many different pathways to healing, because there isn't just one, there isn't one person that's going to work for everyone. There isn't one modality, one type of healing, one type of therapy that's going to work for everyone. So if you've tried something that didn't work for you, try something new, give it a chance, give yourself a chance. Thank you so much again for being here tonight. I can't wait to share some new stuff with you guys on Monday. And I will talk to you guys all later.